Thank you, Pastor Cody. I know what you're all thinking right now. You're thinking, wow, he looks much too young to be a retired pastor, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, okay, good. It's a real privilege to be here and speak to you today. Now, I know every guest speaker says that, right? It's a real privilege to be here today to speak with you. But I mean it because you are my peers. You're the people I go to church with. You're the people who know me. Some of you know me better than other people. Mike and Annie know me way too well. Uh, But you know me, and you know I can't pull anything over your eyes. You know I'm not going to make some claims that aren't real in my life. Uh, And so it is a privilege to have you, my peers, here today just to hear what God has talked to me about. All week long, I've been praying that God would send people to church today who needed to hear this message. So if you're wondering, what am I doing here today? I had no plans to go to church today. How come I'm here? It could be God has a divine appointment for you, and you're here because God says, hmm, okay, I want to talk to you today. Last time I spoke, I spoke on the importance of humility in our relationship with God. And we saw that God resists the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. Now, that concept is very foreign to our natural way of thinking. We don't think in terms of, how, how can I be more humble? Today, I want us to consider another spiritual principle that goes against everything that we want to believe. This is going to be contrary to our our natural desires, our natural wants. Last week, or the past few weeks, Pastor Cody's been doing an excellent series on suffering. And last week he talked about, remember, our worldview, the lenses that we see the world through. I call it seeing life through the eyes of God. We either see life with our focus on our circumstances or we see life through the promises of God. It's one or the other. We focus on one. Sometimes we look so completely at our circumstances, so focused on our circumstances that we totally forget the promises of God. Take your Bibles. Get your Bible. If you don't, Pastor John might have some back there for you. Uh, just raise your hand. Let's, let's begin in Romans chapter 4. <clears throat> Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. We have a good illustration of a person who was looking through two sets of lenses. The lenses of the natural and the lenses of the spiritual. Romans 4.18. It says, Against all hope... Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. It talks about two types of hope there, doesn't it? Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed. Two different hopes. One was based upon what Abraham could see. Remember, he was old. He was past the years of where he could father children. It was hopeless 
that he could be the father of many nations. But on the other hand, there was a hope that was based upon God's promises. God said, you will be the father of many people. Which was he going to focus on? What he could see with his eyes? Do we walk by sight? Or that which was based on the promises of God? Do we walk by faith? We can only walk by one or the other. Going down to verse 20, Romans 4.20. says, Yet he, Abraham, did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Verse 21. Being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is probably my favorite definition of faith in the Bible. It's a great sermon outline because there's three P's in there. Three things begin with the letter P. Number one, being fully what? Persuaded. Faith is being fully persuaded. Not halfway persuaded, not kind of persuaded. It's fully persuaded that God has the power, that's our second P, God has the power to do what he had promised. Faith says, I believe completely that God has the power to do what he said he's going to do. That's what faith is. Faith is not me telling God what I want him to do and then believing he's going to do it. That's another P, that's presumption. Okay? But it's being fully persuaded that God will do what he said he's going to do. This morning's challenge is not going to be for us to do something. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. Today's challenge, rather, is for us to believe something. That's what I want us to do. I want us to come away from here today believing something that maybe we've not believed before. To be fully persuaded in God's power to keep his promise, even when it flies in the face of our natural way of thinking. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to spend most of our time over here in 2 Corinthians today. I have two sermon titles today. The first one is Rethinking Weakness. So if you want to write down your piece of paper, sermon title, Rethinking Weakness. Second sermon title is The Power of Weakness. I couldn't decide between the two. Okay, I liked them both. I thought they were both good titles. So already you've got double your money's worth this morning. You've got two sermon titles to choose from. All right? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Okay, self-examination time. Cal, how much time do you spend boasting about your weakness? Hmm. Hmm. Weakness is something to boast about? I mean, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you like weakness? Uh, You know, physical weakness, emotional weakness. Our society today tells us You have to be strong. You've got to be strong. I spent some time this week 
pondering that. Why, why do we like to be strong? Why is it we want to be strong? And I came to this conclusion. With strength comes the feeling of control. I didn't say comes control. It's just the feeling of control. With strength comes the feeling of control. We like strength because when, we, when we're strong, we feel like we're more in control of things. I love the Old Testament. I was raised practically from the day I was born in the church, going to Sunday school, learned all the Old Testament stories. Uh, I, I really like, I mean, especially the book of Judges, you know, some of the ones where the lady nails this guy's head with a nail, you know, right through the board he's laying on. That was really cool, you know. And the guy that was so fat, when the guy stuck him with a dagger, the fat engulfed his dagger in the hand and his arm. And, you know, as a junior high boy, I thought, ah, that's cool stuff, you know. I just love them Old Testament stories. Have you ever pondered why do we have those stories? Why do we have them? At first, I thought, well, the Old Testament is the history of Israel, and God gave us those stories so we would know the history of Israel. And and yes, that's part of it. But if you think about it, why those stories and not the millions of other things that happened, you know, in that time period. Why did God pick those stories to be in the Old Testament? Conclusion I came to is that every story in the Old Testament has a point to it. A point that God wants us to get. He wants us to understand. He wants us to learn not just the history, but he wants us to to get the point. And as I started in my mind going through Old Testament stories one after another, I began to see a common point in a lot of those stories. And the point was this. Weakness is better than strength. So let's just just think about some of the stories that we know from the Old Testament. Gideon. Remember Gideon, book of Judges? God called him to go out and fight the Midianites, and so he gets an army together. And God says, it's too big. He says, tell the people, if anybody's afraid of going into battle, they can go home. Gideon gets up, says, anybody afraid of battle? Go go home. People went, I'm out of here. You know, and they left. And God said, there's still too many people here. The army's too big. Take them down to the water. Those who lap water like a dog, you know, those are out. They go home. And God reduced the number of people in his army, and that goes against natural military strategy. What's the point? David and Goliath. David is big. I mean, Goliath is big. He's strong. He's got armor. He's got a sword. He's an experienced soldier. Strength. David, young, no experience, no armor, slingshot. What's the point? Weakness is better than strength. 
Moses. Oh, gotta love Moses. God calls him to a great, fantastic job of leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. And what does Moses do? He argues with God. Have you ever argued with God? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In his argument, Moses keeps drawing attention to his weakness. I can't. I can't. I can't. And God says, I can. Abraham, we already looked at that this morning. Story after story in the Old Testament, we see a point being brought out that weakness is better than strength. In fact, we see that weakness is a focal point of many of those stories. So it would seem that God's trying to make a point here. Question is, are we getting it? Are we understanding what it is? Weakness is better than strength. Now, I am a part two-year-old, okay? Just ask my wife. She'll tell you, okay? And so I want to know why. Why? Why is weakness better than strength? Why does God want me to be weak? Well, if we keep your finger here in 2 Corinthians, but please leave it attached to your hand, uh, and go to Judges chapter 7. Thank you over there. I appreciate that. Uh, Judges chapter 7. Why does God want Gideon's army to be small, to be weak against a strong Midian army? Judges chapter 7, verse 1. So Jerubal, that is Gideon, and his army got up early and went as far as the spring of Harad. The armies of the Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Marah. And God said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Okay, God answers the why question right there. Why does God want Gideon to reduce his army? Because if they go out in strength, then they're going to boast that they save themselves in their own strength. <clears throat> the problem with our own strength is that when we think we have it, we tend to depend upon it instead of depending upon God. When we depend upon our own strength, then we give the credit to ourselves. So we say, oh, I did that. I was strong. I overcame. I had the power. The Apostle Paul, I don't know what your mental image of the Apostle Paul is. When I was young, yeah, young, I, I had a mental image that the Apostle Paul was some great, oh, just wonderful, all powerful. I mean, there was the Trinity and then there was the Apostle Paul, you know, right there. The more I read about him, the more I realize that he was a weak, frail, prone to make rash decisions that he shouldn't have made. I mean, he, he was not the man that I originally thought he was at all. We have in 2 Corinthians some incidences, if you would, 
where the Apostle Paul talks about this. So let's go to 2 Corinthians 4, 7. should have your finger already back there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Or not in chapter 4, but in 2 Corinthians. Now we're going to chapter 4. Paul says this about the concept of weakness. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now he talks about a treasure. What's the treasure? Well, if you back up there, it's the light of the glory of God in Christ. And it says that God has put this light in jars of clay. Jars of clay. Mud jugs. Cracked pots. Some of us more than others, I'm sure. Okay? Something that's weak. Something that's fragile. Something that's easily broken. That's us. He puts his light in us knowing that we're frail. Knowing that we're fragile. Knowing that we're easily broken. Knowing that we are weak. My wife and I just got back from a cruise, and uh, we went to the Western Caribbean. Pastor talked about the suffering that I've gone through, you know, that's part of that, you know. It was hot, it was 80 degrees, you know, and we had to sit in the sun and on the beach, and it was horrible. Yeah. Every port we went to, right off the ship, there's a tourist trap. If you've ever been on a cruise, you know what I'm talking about. There's a tourist trap right there. And they got their stores, and everyone has an international diamond exchange store. Everyone. Same in Alaska and everywhere we've been. They all have them. And uh, I actually, I never went in one. I'm more of the T-shirt shop kind of guy, okay? But uh, I understand with diamonds that if you want to see the glory of the diamond, you do a couple things. Number one is you need a light. Okay? You need a light to shine down on the diamond. But the second thing you need is a black background, a very dark background. And that background contrasts with the diamond, showing the beauty of the diamond. The light is the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And we're the background the dark background, so that people can see the glory of God in us. The weaker we are, the more people can see the strength of God. Now, Paul uses this principle later on as an illustration of how it all works. So let's, let's look at the illustration. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 12 now. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. Paul's going to show how God uses personal weakness in order to show forth his strength. So 2 Corinthians 12, 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. He begins with a problem. I do some life coaching, and 
And one of the things we always start is we, we look for a problem. You, got, you need a problem. Before you can fix something, you need to identify what the problem is that, that needs to be fixed. And Paul says, here's the problem. The problem was that there was a very real danger of the Apostle Paul having spiritual pride. The very real danger that he could be puffed up with pride. And the, the cause of the pride was the abundance of revelations that was given to him. Now, I've never received any direct revelations from God, not, not like Paul. But you know, we don't need an abundance of revelations to become puffed up with spiritual pride. I've seen it in 40 years of pastoring. When we think that we're better than other Christians, that's spiritual pride. When we think we're better because of something we believe that they don't believe, that's spiritual pride. When we think we're better than other Christians because of something we do, that's spiritual pride. When we think we're better than other Christians because of something we don't do, that's spiritual pride. Now, doctrine is good. We must know doctrine. That's one reason why I'm coming to church here, because we're getting good doctrine, good teaching. The word doctrine simply means teaching. We're getting good teaching here. But if Satan can't keep us ignorant of the truth, the very next best thing is to have us become proud of it. See, Satan gets you one way or the other. I mean, he, you know, either keep you ignorant or if you learn something, oh, I'm going to work on developing pride there in him. I preached a message once. I think it was in Colorado. No, no, it was in Oregon. And uh, a fella came up to me afterwards. And he said something that at first I thought was really great, but then I realized afterwards wasn't so hot. He came up to me and he says, Cal, that was the best sermon I have ever heard in my life. And I went, oh, wow. <laughs> I'm pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah, and, and this was from a preacher, and he'd heard a lot of people speak, you know, and I, wow, that's pretty good. And you know what? Satan just got in there, and the pride just started to grow. And, and you know, the Lord brought that to my mind, that even complimenting somebody, Satan can take, a, and we need to compliment each other, I believe. We need to encourage one another and say good things to one another. But, but we got to be careful because Satan will get in there and he'll try to develop spiritual pride within us. If Satan can't keep us uninvolved in God's kingdom, then the next best thing is to cause us to become proud of our involvement in God's kingdom. So how does God deal with this potential of pride in the Apostle Paul. Well, he says here, a thorn in the flesh was given to him. Thorn in the flesh was given to Paul. Now, what's a thorn? A thorn is an irritant. It's not a deadly wound. It's not a mortal wound. It's, it's an irritation. Now, in our lives, there are two causes of irritations. You may have noticed this. Number one is other people. 
If you're married, you probably get that. Okay, you know, sometimes our spouses can be irritants to us. All right. Or if you've got children, or if you have relationships with anybody at work or anything, you know, you know people can be irritants. The other source of irritation in our life is circumstances. You know, you're, you're trying to get a job done, and the, you're working with a government branch, and they're just not cooperating, and you can't get, you know, whatever, you know, and it's just, it's a circumstance. It's not a person. It's not one individual necessarily. It's just a whole circumstance there. Paul says to deal with the potential of pride in his life, God gave him, or a thorn was given to him. Now, the word given, I like the word given, because it's the Greek word that means a grace gift. A grace gift was given to him. Now, who gave this gift to Paul? Most, well, no, I wouldn't say most, but a lot of the commentaries I read all said Satan gave him the thorn in the flesh. But that doesn't make sense to me. Why would Satan want to deal a death blow to Paul's pride? Satan wouldn't want to do that. Satan wants to develop pride within us. And besides, it's a grace gift given. We're going to see that Satan is involved, but I believe that the thorn was a grace gift from God to the Apostle Paul. The irritants in my life, the irritants in your life, are grace gifts from God. Probably a gift we'd rather not get, okay? But they're grace gifts for a purpose we're going to see. That person in my life that's an irritant, that circumstance in my life that's an irritant, that is a grace gift. Now again, I'm not asking you to do anything this morning. I'm just asking you to believe something. Can you, first of all, believe this morning that that thorn in your flesh is a grace gift from God there to accomplish a purpose in your life. That's the first thing to believe. It's a gift. Allowed or given, doesn't matter, I don't care which way you want to look at it, it's there to accomplish his purpose. But on the other side of the coin, it says that it is a messenger of Satan to torment us. The word torment here means to inflict pain or to beat. Satan wants to use that thorn in our flesh to beat us up with, to inflict pain upon us. God wants to use it for good. Satan wants to use it for evil. And we have a choice, which we're going to let happen in our life. Now, why does Paul tell us this? Well, first of all, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. You know, I, I get that. But, but apart from that, why, why is it in the Bible? What's God's reason for telling us about Paul's thorn in the flesh? Number one, I do not think it's for us to try to guess what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. I read a lot of commentaries, spent a lot of pages trying to explain this was Paul's thorn in the flesh. Some were kind of reasonable, like Paul was legally blind. You know, some were kind of ridiculous. It was Paul's wife. You know, I didn't even know Paul had a wife. Okay. Uh, it's not for us to guess what the thorn was. Besides, if we knew what the thorn was and we had the same thorn, 
then we could go, <laughs> I got the same thorn in the flesh as the Apostle Paul had, you know? I'm right up there with him, all right? Now, now, I don't think it's even so much just to tell us that Paul had a thorn in the flesh. I think the ultimate reason God chose to put this in the Bible is to tell us the purpose of our thorns in the flesh. We all have them. They're there for a reason. Now, it's not always to remove pride. And and I guess I want to give a disclaimer right now. Okay? All suffering in your life isn't there because God is trying to do something in your life to teach you something. You know, there's deserved suffering and there's undeserved suffering. You know what the difference between the two is? My suffering's undeserved. Your suffering you deserve. Okay? <laughs> isn't that kind of how we, we think about it? Oh, yeah, my, my suffering is so undeserved. You know, I, you know, but oh, yeah, you deserve yours. Yeah, you, you deserve a lot. Not all suffering is there because God is doing something. There's some lack, something lacking in your life or something. But there are a lot of reasons why God does cause these sufferings in our life. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, again, leave a finger in, in 2 Corinthians so we can come back there. But in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, We have God explaining why the children of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. Now, we know, if we know our Old Testament, that the spies went in and only two said go into the promised land and ten said no, we can't. And, and, you know, we know that reason. But do we know God's reason? Here's God's reason, Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 3. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Sidebar, okay? People talk about the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Technically, they did not. They did not wander. It says right here, your, the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. They were being led. The pillar of fire at night, the cloud by day, all 40 years they were being led. They felt like they were wandering. Oh, boy. Feel like you're wandering around aimlessly, no purpose, no reason. You're not getting anywhere. You're just wandering. It could be that God is leading you each and every step of the way in order to accomplish a purpose. If you looked at the path the children of Israel took from Egypt to the promised land, it would have a lot of loop-de-loops in it. Well, right back and forth and, you know, so on. We think the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. That's geometry, right? God says sometimes the best distance between two points takes a lot of detours on the route because we need to experience a lot of things before we get there. I am a person who likes end products. 
My wife is a person who likes the process. Okay? I don't like the process. I want instant product. Okay? I don't know if I mentioned this last time I preached, but that was a year ago, so you've forgotten anyhow. Okay? But when my wife and I go shopping, my goal is to get in the store, find the item, and out of the store in less than three minutes. In product. Got to get the product, okay? My wife's idea of shopping is to go in the store, find the item that she wants, and then go to every other store in the mall to compare, and then three hours later go back and buy the first product that she saw when she went into the store, okay? My wife likes the process, okay? I want instant spirituality. I want to be godly, I want to be holy, and I want it right now. And God says, there is a process, Cal, you have to go through in order to get there. But I don't like the process. But God says, I don't care if you like it or not, Cal, it's a process, and you've got to go through it. The children of Israel had to go through a process. Did you notice the verbs there in that Deuteronomy passage? To humble you, to test you, to teach you. There's a process going on. Why doesn't God just take away my thorn in the flesh right here, right now? There's a process going on. And I want to short-circuit the process. God says no. Well, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Verse 8, let me check my watch. You know what it means when a pastor checks his watch, don't you? Nothing. Yes. <laughs> okay, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 8. What is our natural response to the trials and tribulations of life, to those, that undeserved suffering going on? Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Our natural response to trials and tribulations in our life is, Lord, take them away. I don't want them. And I believe that's because we do not understand one of the greatest principles of the grace of God. And that is this. Weakness is a gift of God's grace. A man's way is to say, God, take it away. What's God's way? Well, look down 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. The Apostle Paul says he had a conversation with God about his thorn in the flesh. Would you like to have a conversation with God about your thorn in the flesh? I mean, would you like to have God stand next to you and say, okay, God, I got this thorn in the flesh, you know, here's my situation and so on. Would you like to have that conversation? I think if I did, God's answer would be exactly the same as he gave Paul. He'd get the same answer. The answer would be the same. Again, notice there's nothing to do, only something to believe. The first thing God wants us to believe, God's strength 
is sufficient for you. God's strength is sufficient. Not just God's strength is sufficient, but God's strength is sufficient for you. Not everybody else, but you. God's strength is sufficient for you. Notice, God's not taking the thorn away. He's going to keep the thorn there, but he says, my grace is going to be equal to or greater than that which you need. Do I believe God's strength is sufficient for me? Do you believe God's strength is sufficient for you, your situation, your circumstance, that thorn in the flesh you have? Something to believe. Second thing to believe, God's strength is made perfect in weakness. I like the word strength. In the Greek, and I, I'm not going to bore you with a bunch of Greek, but it's, I'm going to tell you anyhow, it's the word dunamis. And it is the Greek word that we get our English word dynamite from. Okay? It is dynamic power, the dynamic power of God. God's dynamic power is made perfect in weakness. Now, the word perfect here is the word that means full or complete. We want the full power of God in our life. We want the full, the complete, dynamic power of God in our life. He says it is only made complete in weakness. I like the word weakness there. The word weakness is the word that means inability to produce results. Total helplessness. When I was young, I was in Cub Scouts. And when we went to our Cub Scout meeting once a week, we had to tell the Cub Scout leader a good deed that we had done that week. Well, I never did any good deeds, okay? So I lied when I went to the Cub Scout meeting. And, my, and I think back on it now, and I realize they didn't believe a word of it, okay? But I thought I was pretty convincing. I said, I helped a little old lady across the street this week. Isn't that what Boy Scouts are supposed to do? You know, it's just cartoons, you see that? Yeah. And um, helping a little old lady across the street means that the little old lady basically walked on her own. Maybe, you know, I would have would, you know, held her arm or something as she walked across the street. But she wasn't helpless. But if there was a person there that didn't have any legs and he was, he was just on the sidewalk and he says, can you get me across the street? And I would have to pick him up and put him on my back and carry him across the street. That would be an illustration of the word weakness here. Helping total helplessness. Total inability. God's dynamic power is made complete in our total helplessness. Wow. I have no ability to produce divine results apart from the divine power of God at work within me. Philippians 2.13. This is a verse, when I came to understand this verse, talk about a paradigm shift. 
man, a sea change just took place in my, my whole thinking about my Christian life when I realized what this verse was saying. Philippians 2.13 says, For God is working in you, giving you the desire to obey him and the power to do what pleases him. It is only God working in me to even desire to do what God wants me to do. The desire is a gift of God's grace. Now remember, I said the thorn is a gift of God's grace. Often it's the thorn that produces the desire. The gifts of God's grace. The desire. I want you to remember that. I'm going to come back to this a little bit later. The desire to do the will of God is a, is a gift of God's grace in my life. Also it says, the power to do his will is a result of God working within me. So the desire and the power to do God's will are both gifts of God's grace. Okay. I'm convinced. I understand now. God wants me to be weak. When I'm weak, then God can produce his divine strength within me. I I understand. But how do I respond to that now? What do I do? What do I say? How, what, what's God expecting as a result of this information? Is it just something I tuck away in the back of my brain? Or does this actually have some kind of a relevant impact upon my life? Well, let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul repeats what he said earlier in 2 Corinthians. He says, Therefore... I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest upon me. The Apostle Paul takes the leap of faith. He goes beyond just thanking God for his grace. Paul believes God that that thorn was absolutely necessary for his personal godliness, in this case for the elimination of the potential of pride. So Paul says, because of this, I am going to boast in my weakness. Now, how often do we hear that in Christian circles? Boasting about our weakness. Not wallowing in our weakness. Some Christians do that, okay? But actually boasting. I am so glad that I am weak because God has poured out his power upon me in my weakness. No, we fight that. We don't want to believe that. We won't believe that. And so then we have the final purpose clause. Paul says that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Why glory in infirmities? So we can experience the power of God. It's a simple trade-off. You're familiar with the balance scale, right? Okay, the balance scale. And here is my weakness. We attribute much too weight to that. And here's God's strength, and we don't give enough weight to God's strength. But God says, you know, the proper understanding of weakness is, is that when we have that weakness, God comes with overpowering strength to overcome that. And then just to put the whipped cream on the chocolate on the Sunday, 
Paul adds, verse 10, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Paul says he delights. Delights. The word delight is pure delight. Or, I like this translation, positive inner happiness. Paul says, I have a positive inner happiness. And then he talks about five areas of inability. Number one, weakness. That's our word, weakness again, total inability. Paul says he has pure inner delight over total inability, over insults. We know what that is. That's verbal insults. Been there? Yeah, I've been there. Hardships. The word hardships means material lacking. When we don't have what we think we need. Apostle Paul says he knew how to be content in having nothing and in having a lot. Paul went through that experience of having nothing. Persecutions. What a great word persecution is. It means to be pursued with evil intent. When people have an evil intent, they're they're out after you. They're out to get you. They're out to destroy you. But I think it means something a little bit more than that. The Bible says, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, if words mean anything, that verse tells me if I even desire to be a godly person, I'm going to be persecuted. And I'm looking at my life and there's nobody persecuting me right now, so maybe I don't desire to be godly. No, there is one individual who is always out to destroy us, to pursue us with evil intent, and that is Satan. Those who desire to be godly, Satan is going to pour out his evil upon that person. Pursue with evil intent. Difficulties. This one might be more common for us because the word difficulties here means mental stress or perplexity. Mental stress or perplexity. When we don't know what to do. Have you ever noticed when you don't know what to do, you do dumb things? You know, when, when, you, when, you, when you, you don't know what to do, you start to panic. You know, the, the woman who says, my marriage is in trouble, maybe we need another kid. Yeah, like that's going to reduce the stress in your house. Yeah. He says, for Christ's sake, he delights in all of these things. In order to be what Christ wants him to be, he welcomes these things as being necessary in his life. There's another example of how Paul applied this found over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Or excuse me, I think that should be 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Second Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. 
One translation puts it this way. I think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and completely overwhelmed, and we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, we learned not to rely on ourselves, but on God who can raise the dead. Paul's talking about a completely different thorn in the flesh here. This one is is a lot more serious. He says he despaired even of life. He was overwhelmed. He felt crushed. But he says, as a result of that suffering, that trial, that tribulation in his life, he gained another power. And the power was to learn not to trust in himself, but to trust in God. You know, maybe that's what God's been trying to teach me all along. Maybe that's what God's wanting for me. Maybe he's trying to say, Cal, you just trust in yourself too much. You need to trust more in me. Maybe that's the one God's working on. I don't know. Paul says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. There's a trade-off. When I am weak, physically, emotionally, however, I am strong, not with fleshly strength, but with God's own divine power. So one final question for us this morning. How many of us are willing to choose helplessness, inability, total weakness, in order for God to do his work within us. Let's bow our heads, shall we?